Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Hello. This is Gigabit Nation, a band talk radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today. And thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important issues and getting broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. Um, today, I'm going to come to a topic that uh, I have written about, uh, particularly in the, in the early days of getting involved in uh, community broadband activities, and that is the role of local government as, as customer, as key leg uh, of the um, business case for actually having a community broadband network in the first place. And my contention has always been that government represents a very significant uh, potential uh, revenue stream. Uh, it is an, a great potential anchor uh, customer on the network. Uh, and it's a great, um, in terms of rallying folks around within a community, uh, the, the government involvement is just a key uh, key element that should not be uh, ignored. Now, clearly, the, the case still has to be made, you know, what is the, the, the financial benefits and so forth to the, to the network and to the folks that are running the network, whether it's a nonprofit or public-private partnership or what have you. And so today I want to look at specifically that issue of, you know, what are the dollars and cents involved in, in this? What, what actually, you know, are the bottom line benefits of having uh, both the town and a county government as, as primary subscribers on the network. And here our guest today to, to, to talk about this in detail uh, is Chris Mitchell, who is the director with the Institute of Local Self-Reliance. And uh, they have done a lot of work in the area of community broadband. Uh, Chris is a uh, very, very significant advocate out there uh, pushing for um, community broadband, also educating people, understanding that, you know, the more people are educated, the better decisions they can make. And then they also, uh, his, his organization has released a, a fact sheet on the, the, the financial aspect of government involvement. So I figured no better person to have in here to talk about the, this role uh, is Chris. And Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's uh, exciting to be on uh, Gigabit Nation. Cool deal. Cool deal. So you and I have talked a bunch of times, you know, we follow each other on Twitter, so we know we're pretty much in, in sync with a lot of issues. Um, the, 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 broad, the, the local government role, um, at a high level view, how do you, how do you view that? What, why is this important? Well, we came to be interested in telecommunications because uh, we recognized how important it was for communities. And we asked ourselves a question of um, how can a community ensure that it has the uh, the best connections it needs, uh, whether we're talking about connecting schools and libraries or whether we're going all the way to connecting residents and businesses. And when we looked at the regulatory environment, we found that 
uh, if the network was owned by some entity other than the community, uh, then that entity pretty much had free reign to do what it wanted, charge what it wanted, and the interests of the community may or may not be taken into account. Uh, so we came around to recognizing that um, the only way to ensure that a network was really serving the community was for it to be accountable to it in the form of uh, being a cooperative or owned by a local government, often uh, the mu local municipal government, um, or some other form of a nonprofit arrangement where uh, decisions are made based on um, uh, what's best for the community as opposed to just what will generate the most revenue. Um, and so basically, um, when we did that, we also found that the side effect of solving all of those problems was also that the community could make sure that all of its schools and libraries and public facilities had the very best connections at the most affordable rates. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the government as a subscriber, okay, so, I mean, even just an advocate for the technology, more than just, to say, the uh, the owner, but as an actual user, Hello. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I I wasn't sure if you were finished answering the or asking the question. Could you repeat? Yes, it? I, I am finished. I just I was just summarizing. So, uh, okay. the role, the the financial role, that's a significant one, is it not for for the community for the community network? Um. So the the networks that we're talking about are ones where typically the community owns it and in many cases also provides services on it. Um, that's not always the case. Sometimes the community simply owns it and allows someone else to provide services. Uh, but the, ultimately, a school is not leasing connectivity from AT&T or some cable company. It's uh, getting connectivity uh, from uh, the local government, typically. Mm -hmm. Now, when I talk about uh, community broadband, specifically municipal wireless, no five. Um, I made a case that if you have um, the local government as a subscriber, that there are significant benefits to the various departments within that local government. Um, and I think you're in your report, your fact sheet that touches on a number of those. In from your perspective, what is that impact in terms of uh, the financial benefit to government, local government, as they user of the broadband network? Well, I think the key thing to keep in mind is that any time in any industry, the more middlemen you have, the higher the cost is going to be uh, for any given product. Uh, that's because every middleman has to exact some sort of margin in order for them to justify being in the business. And so when the community is a subscriber on its own network, uh, that takes a lot of middlemen out of the equation. And so the result is incredibly fast connections at uh, very affordable rates. Uh, so right now, um, a school or a library in a community uh, may be paying, um, let's just say, $1,500 or, or $2,000 uh, in order to get a uh, 1.5 megabit line. Um, it's not uncommon, and a number of communities actually pay more. Um, we, in our fact sheet, um, which is available on ILSR.org for Institute for Local Self-Reliance, if anyone wants to take a look, um, 
we identify a number of communities that pay much less and um, get much more. And so, for instance, in Chinook, Kansas, um, the schools pay $250 per month per site for a gigabit connection to the uh, school district network. Um, it's it's That's probably the best deal we've found. Um, I mean, there may be some communities that simply don't charge a school district to have a, a connection on their own networks. Um, but this um, $250 a month is incredible. Uh, other communities that pay maybe $1,500 a month uh, per location per um, uh, for a gigabit connection, uh, they're often pretty happy with that rate even. And so um, uh, other communities, I mean, I, I was just talking with one community in northern Minnesota where they're paying $41,000 uh, a year for a 6 megabit connection. Um, and so you, you just sort of get a sense of the range uh, when you're leasing from the private providers, they can be charging incredibly inflated rates. And as I'm, as I know you know, and probably many of your your listeners know, a lot of those costs are actually absorbed by um, all of us in the United States who pay into the Universal uh, Service Fund one way or another. And mm-hmm. so there's actually a perverse incentive for some carriers who uh, want to just maximize what they can charge they will charge incredibly inflated rates knowing that a school district uh, is able to pay them because ultimately the rest of us are subsidizing that connection. Um, but then there's there's one other thing, and so that's sort of the sexy answer, I think, which is that when a community owns these networks, it can provide incredibly fast connections at incredibly affordable rates. That's sort of the headline. But for those of us that um, go a little bit deeper and uh, the budget wonks and, and, and you want to look at how these things actually have a, a real impact behind the scenes, it allows a community to do better budgeting. And so a school district, um, will, when it owns the network or when it's, um, the network is owned by a local government, um, they, they will know, um, you know uh, they'll have a sense of how much the cost will increase each year, if at all. Um, and so, you know, you I just was listening to a discussion and heard uh, a college in um, Texas uh, had been told recently by AT&T that um, their rates for broadband were going to be doubled in the near future. Uh, we wrote about Martin County, Florida, where the county was told by Comcast, you know, if you want to keep using our service, we're going to raise the prices by 800% over five years. Um, that does not happen when the community owns the network because, uh, for one thing, there's no real incentive to uh, fleece themselves, to, to overcharge themselves. Um, but it, to the extent that they have to worry about paying more, it's their decision on when they want to upgrade the network. <laughs> and so I think it's, it's important to recognize that there's this predictability that comes from owning the network um, that's, that is very important and uh, is often overlooked. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that I that I tell folks a lot is, you know, go department by department, <clears throat> uh, agency by agency, and determine, you know, what are you paying now? Uh, what kind of speeds are you getting? And really do an analysis based on, you know, all of those collectively, you know, uh, inspections, uh, police, public safety in general, um, you know, the schools, the utilities, and so forth. And by doing that exercise, 
that would help open their eyes to where the possibilities lie. And in the reports and stuff that you've written, have you seen a lot of that kind of analysis that takes place uh, by communities when they kind of, when the light goes off and they say, yes, I, we can, this makes sense for us because look at all this money we can save. Yeah, we've seen that to some extent, and and it's good that you offer that advice. It's brilliant <laughs> advice. It's it's really important, and it's something that not enough communities do. Um, a number of the things that a number of the communities that we've written about, we've found that they didn't necessarily um, understand at the beginning where all of the savings would come from, and so even when a community has done an audit like that, they haven't necessarily uncovered all the different ways. Uh, and so when when I did um, our uh, broadband at the speed of light report, which looked at um, Chattanooga, Lafayette, and Bristol, um, we we found that Lafayette had uh, built this network, and um, after having built it, uh, the uh, I want to say the the transportation uh, folks in town uh, who had been using some of the uh, remote cameras, some video cameras that had been tied into the uh, private cable company, Cox Network. Um, Cox said, we're going to increase your price for this. And uh, the uh, community said, or the the traffic engineers um, said, well, we're going to see what it would cost to get it through this network that the city owns. And they found not only that it was cheaper, but that they had a much better feed. And so previously, because of the limitations of the cable network, they did not um, really take full advantage of uh, the cameras, which were high definition. Uh, so once they went to the fiber network that was owned by the city, not only did they pay less, but they were able to get more out of the cameras because of the higher capacity network. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's pretty easy to, um, it's pretty easy, unfortunately uncommon, but it's, it is relatively easy to get a sense of uh, the importance of paying less. But Sometimes having that extra capacity um, has really important ramifications as well. Um, you know, video cameras are the most obvious way. Um, mm -hmm. But there's other places too where um, you know we've found that um, a community has, uh, for instance, seen like uh, public safety advantages. Uh, uh, you know, maybe a, a, a nearby jurisdiction can share some towers and save some money, or they tie a um, a 911 center into the network uh, and saved that 911 center more money uh, because they had been paying more for a slower connection. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about the, um, you know, opening new possibilities, I guess, you know, you, you were starting down that path. Uh, what kinds of, what kinds of, I don't know, discoveries have commun communities had after their initial application. So, for example, you talked about Chattanooga, right? So Chattanooga's network started as an effort to improve uh, operations of its its smart grid. And then after that, they discovered, uh, you know, a, a number of, of new applications. Um, so are we looking at a situation where um, <clears throat> you start with one thing, but you go in with a significant assurance that you'll probably find new applications as as more people become aware of the network? Oh, definitely. I mean, we're certainly seeing this in education where, um, you know, we still have so many schools in this country that, that don't have the enough capacity to take advantage of modern applications. 
and then you look at a um, place like um, Bristol, Virginia, which had gigabit to the schools in 2003. Um, you know, they've been experimenting with next generation education for a while. Um, just across the Tennessee border, I just recently um, spoke with uh, the uh, Bristol, Tennessee folks from uh, Bristol, Tennessee Essential Services. And they were talking about how, you know, they got these schools wired up with uh, gigabit in their communities. um, And the schools are doing virtual field trips. They're they're able to take classes from uh, from teachers that are remote because the school district may not have all the specialties. Um, And so I think that's that's sort of the first phase. Um, And then, you know, as we have more schools uh, that are able to have these fast connections. It creates a whole new market for application developers. Um, so the the second wave we sort of see, I think, are more of these uh, educational programs that allow students to learn individually. So you know, if one student is having trouble subtracting and another student is having trouble multiplying, uh, you don't have to have a teacher making a decision over who gets more instruction. Instead, you have software that is able to um, to um, take advantage of that and to and to give them the personalized feedback that they need. Uh, and so that's sort of a, a phase two, I think, of of um, of uh, a new ability to um, take advantage of of these high speed networks and uh, to provide this adaptive software. Um, mm-hmm. But then I think we haven't even begun to really take full advantage for uh, police and uh, and fire uh, to have these robust networks. Uh, there's all kinds of new things that are coming online. I mean, there's talk in uh, Wilson, North Carolina. Uh, we just did a, a case study with Common Cause. Um, that's uh, it's called um, oh, it's called um, Carolina's Connected Community. Wilson gives green light to fast internet, and uh, Wilson built this green light um, network uh, that does connects everyone. But um, the the fire department there and the and the police department have been. I think more ambitious than most communities have in terms of taking advantage of these faster networks that previously they could not afford to have, but now that the public's serving it to them, they can. And so the fire department's talking about trying to have more sensors in buildings, so that um, when a when a fire fi- when a fire um, engine is approaching a, a house, uh, a, more like a, a large building, it would have sensors in the building that were reporting uh, via you know, probably some sort of local wireless network that's being carried on the fiber network um, and then being transmitted again wirelessly back to the fire engine crew uh, so that they know things like barometric pressure and the the condition of what's happening in different levels of the building and just all kinds of metrics. Um, They actually have a uh, their mobile command center for police and fire. Um, You know they can they take that wherever it goes. They can plug right into either a high capacity wireless or even um, a local fiber. Um, They can just plug it right in and have very high capacity um, networks to make sure that they have all the blueprints and everything that they need uh, to make sure that they're able to respond to an incident. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned an important. Go ahead. Um, And I I would just say that, you know, we have some of this stuff starting already, but we still have the vast majority of us live in places where there's no reason for the fire department or the police department to be able to do that because they're limited in their networks. And so Mm -hmm. until we solve this problem, the the entrepreneurs among us and the innovators are not going to have any real incentive to provide these next generation applications. 
Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned an, uh, an important word there. You talked about metrics. Um, in the in the planning stage, how does a local government go about creating metrics? Because in in you know, sort of in its uh, I don't know purest form, local government is a representative body that doesn't have a um, an ROI driven um, motive for doing things. It does a lot of stuff for the public good. However, one, isn't it important that there be some sort of measure metrics to measure the potential value of the network in in some element that relates to some amount of dollars and cents? And two, if so, you know, how do you how do you establish those metrics? Well, it's a it's a good question. Um, you know, I think it varies from government to government uh, to the extent to which they already have these metrics in place. Um, because particularly in telecommunications, uh, the uh, existing providers um, are so opposed to uh, local governments building networks. And I'm not just talking about, obviously, we know that it's uh, controversial, um, that we know that uh, Time Warner Cable and Comcast and AT&T try to ban uh, the provision of services um, to the public, to, uh, you know, residents or businesses. Uh, You know, we've Mm -hmm. we've seen that in many states. But uh, there's also been lawsuits, and there's even an attempt uh, last year in Minnesota um, to pass a law that would literally restrict the community from building a network to serve itself. And so it's important to note that this is a political question, right? And so um, I, I often advise communities that, if they are already owning and operating a network that's maybe just connecting the fire department or you know maybe just connecting one or two public facilities it's very important to document uh what the uh costs are and what the services are delivered and then to compare that against what the private sector would be delivering uh and so uh, by way of analogy um it would be like um if you were uh if your um agency was doing uh, the provisioning of uh public water fountains you would want to have a sense of how much money you had saved um you know the local government by having public water fountains as opposed to drinking uh bottled water um providing that in all your meetings and things like that um mm-hmm. the savings are actually uh pretty incredible when you compare water from a water fountain to getting it in bottled water form. And um, and unfortunately, if you compare that to telecommunications, um, no one, I shouldn't say no one, very few people have made that effort to say, um, this is what we are providing to our schools, and this is what we would have to pay the private sector if we were getting the services from them. In every case in which we've done that analysis, we've found that the community is saving a lot of money by providing its own services. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it's not because the private sector is, is incompetent. It's because uh, there's so little competition in the private sector that those who are already there, which are overwhelmingly very big national companies, um, they have an incentive to just charge as much as they can get away with. Um, so, so, yeah, I think the, the most important metric is is to say um, this is what we are providing and this is the cost. 
this is what the private sector would be providing or what we'd have to pay the private sector in the absence of our network um, and to be able to show those to uh, lawmakers and citizens who want to know why a local government has made the decision to invest in its own network. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, so the, the cost is the most important one. The next one would be reliability. So um, in the case of uh, of um, D.C., Washington, D.C., after 9-11, uh, you know, we know that Verizon was really hurt by 9-11 in New York um, to a lesser extent uh, in D.C., um, and that it became very apparent that in the event of the most catastrophic, horrible events, that a number of the private carriers did not have sufficient uh, redundancy to ensure uh, rapid recovery. And so that rattled uh, some of the people in D.C. that were in charge of making sure that police would be effective after such a horrible event. And they embarked on a project to build uh, what's now called D.C. Net. And that network um, is um, touches basically all of the local government facilities in the district, the schools, the police stations, and increasingly some of the like homeless shelters and other places that touch areas where there's a large digital divide. Um, they've done some analyses and they've found that the cost of um, of duplicating by leasing. Uh, what they've built themselves would be an extra four to five million dollars a year, uh, and they've, you know, they've quite frankly over-engineered it, right? So it's an interesting situation where it's literally been cheaper for them to build a more reliable network than the existing company, uh, phone company, or others that are in the area would have provided. That's largely mm-hmm. because these companies are used to inflating services. Uh, the cost of services because of a lack of competition, um, but more fundamentally, you know, if I'm a if I'm a shareholder in Verizon or AT and T, uh, I really don't want, from my narrow shareholder perspective, I really don't want AT and T and Verizon to put a lot of money into insuring against very low probability events, and so it's just it's a mixed it's a mixed incentive I think, which results in in that situation and the way to resolve it is to have a local government building its own network um, to make sure that it can survive a uh, a very low probability high impact event is what we often mm-hmm. call them mm-hmm. when we talk about the um the 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 benefits of uh reliability um do we also get a benefit by virtue of the faster speed, right? So, I mean, if I look at the at the metrics, you know, I can save money. Okay, that's one. Uh, two, I can deliver government services more reliably. But then the other part, though, is also um, uh, if I now can get or build and, you know, become a subscriber to a gigabit network, or even if it's just a 100 or 150 meg network, don't I win as a government by virtue of the additional speed because of all the things that it opens up that I couldn't do before? Absolutely. Uh, you know, here in 
here in St. Paul. Um, I, I live in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I work in Minneapolis. And um, we are having issues in our um, in St. Paul, which is the capital of Minnesota. Um, you know, it's a large metropolitan city. Um, and the uh, local government uh, has been struggling to take advantage of uh, geographic information systems, uh, GIS, because um, the connections that they have have been too slow and too unreliable to transfer uh, very large files across the network easily. And so, you know, here we are in 2012, and uh, the city is is more or less unable to take full advantage of modern technology. And I know that uh, Ramsey County is uh, having similar issues, and and they've been going through this big fight over whether or not they should build their own network and how they should go about doing it. Um, and it's it's sort of fascinating because um you know this is this is just today's usage and i would expect that we're going to see this continue to progress um you know this it's we're going to see particularly when it comes down to these architectural drawings and and things like planning you're going to see more and more detail in files are going to be much larger and so uh, government workers in particular are going to need to have access to very high capacity connections um, you know, there was a, a report that we highlight in our um, public savings uh, fact sheet uh, that um, says that it uh, it's from the uh, State Educational Technology Directors Association, which is the national organization that deals with uh, technology in the classroom, basically. They believe that um, the uh, school district should have every facility connected by one gigabit in the next two years in order to take full advantage of modern technology, and that's going to jump up to 10 gigabits uh, by 2017 and 18. And so when you look at the schools, um, you know, they're going to need vastly, more conne- vastly higher connections. And unfortunately, if they're going to go to AT&T and Verizon for those, it's going to bankrupt the local budgets because those big companies just want to charge so much money for those connections. Um, mm-hmm. But... Um, to answer your your original question in a different way, um, you know, it's we can talk about these high bandwidth GIS applications, but a number of schools would benefit just by being able to centralize their their servers and things like that. So when we did a, a case study on Chanute, Kansas, which is a rural community, uh, we found that one of the benefits benefits they had was once every school had high capacity connections, they could have one location to centralize their servers and run email and files and and you know all kinds of other applications off of that rather than duplicating that in each facility because um when you have a very fast network uh it lends itself to uh having some cost savings along uh those um uh, those means i guess um, okay. Santa Monica, uh, we saw similar things where they were able to collapse many data centers into a fewer uh, number of data centers that were better because they had very fast connectivity throughout town linking um, their public facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, interesting, interesting indeed. Weird, you said, uh, when we were talking before the show started, you mentioned Santa Monica and that you're working on a, a report regarding them. When did that do out? Um, two months ago, <laughs> as these things often are. When it came out, okay, okay, I got you. No, 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 you were right. It was the right question. It was due out two months ago. We hope to release it in the middle of January. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right, now I got you. How did that happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Wilson report that we just released was due out three months ago. So, <laughs> gotcha. You just a little. That's uh, that's okay. We're all we all have these, these deadline issues, so it's it's totally fine. Because Santa Monica was on was on the show like actually in the early days, and one of the one of the bigger draws, uh, in large part because of its a um, uh, because of its uh, ability that they had to consolidate and improve their infra- their communication infrastructure and then use the money they saved to then finance further build-out of the network, uh, which is a case I talk about a lot. But there's also um, uh, an element in there that people may not know about, which is um, in Santa Monica there's a high vacancy issue with commercial uh, buildings. And um, the city tried for a number of months to get the uh, property owners to bring fiber into their buildings, trying to tell them, you know, if they did, it was more expensive. And the um, the property were very reluctant. But the city uh, was, was looking at such a high vacancy rate that they kind of got a little edgy and then, then came out with a whole promotional thing. And, and they didn't give them a tax break. I would have that would have like been counterproductive um, to bringing in more taxes, but they they did manage to find a way, a creative way, to incent the property owners to bring in fiber. And then what happened was once the uh, property owners started advertising, even before the fiber was there, um, <clears throat> they were filling up their buildings and they were generating a waiting list. And, and needless to say, success like that you know, the word gets around and, and so forth, uh, it, it helps drive the process. But I bring this up to say that, you know, this is one of those, um, what do I call it, uh, hidden benefits, right, because, you know, the, the, some very definitive, you know, upfront cost savings. But then after the network's been around for a while, they discover that, well, if we can convince people to extend our network inside their buildings, they're going to fill up their buildings, which benefits the city because then there's additional tax revenue, they don't have, you know, vacant, dilapidated buildings, you know, to kind of screw up with the the, the, the ambiance of the community, as it were, and so forth. But it basically led to a another line of financial benefit, which is, uh, I, I think, an interesting thing to look at because it's not clear that when, when communities are looking at the stuff on the front end, there will be obvious um, cost benefits. There will be obvious areas where they might be able to increase, um, but there's going to be a lot of hidden stuff that that they're not going to know about up front. And there has to be, I don't know, would you say a certain uh, leap of faith that some of the benefits they're going to receive will just not be known at first. They'll be known by doing this whole thing by being the the user of the network. Is that right. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, when it comes to building any kind of infrastructure, I think there has to be an expectation that uh, there will be unknown uses. You know, I often think of um, nobody, when the, when they were building roads, uh, no one thought that it would be used to deliver pizzas in 30 minutes or less, right? Um, mm-hmm. But it's, uh, it's kind of nice to have now. Um, so, when I when you were when you were bringing this up, I was thinking when you were rehashing exactly what what Santa Monica did and and they did it so well. I think it's important to think for communities to think about this in terms of maximizing uh, their ability to to make decisions in the future. 
Um, mm-hmm. and so because they don't know exactly what the benefits will be in the future, um, they need to maintain, make sure that they have the full capacity to make different investments in the future or decide not to make investments in the future. And so when you look at what Santa Monica did, um, they made a number of really smart decisions. One was they built a network and they put the savings from the network back into expanding it. And um, that was uh, has been essential to doing to so many of the other success stories they've brought about. Uh, but importantly, when they started building the network, they made sure that they would have full control over it. And this is something that we see other communities failing to grasp. So you have a community which is um, going to build a network connecting its schools and libraries. And they find out that maybe they could knock 35 40% of the cost of that build off, you know, a substantial reduction in price if they use facilities that are provided by um, an existing cable provider. And in return, they just have to promise to never, ever run traffic from private businesses or residents over their network. Mm-hmm. A lot of communities have, have taken that um, up one way or another, often in franchise agreements or, or other ways. Um, and the end result is five or ten years later, they find that they have this network that's connecting their schools and libraries, but that they can't use it to bring in economic development. They can't use it to, um, you know, to, to connect a business park. Um, they can't use it to connect a, uh, a rundown, uh, low-income area of neighbor of, of the community that they want to revitalize, because they've get, traded away their freedom to save a little bit of money. And I say a little bit of money because. At the time, it seemed like a lot of money. But 10 years later, you think, wow, you know, we lost decades worth of ability to make decisions uh, in return for saving, you know, just a little bit of money. Um, and so it, it, when, you're, when you're making decisions that have such a long-term impact, it's really important to maximize the, uh, well, um, the ability to control it in the future, which typically means owning it yourself. Um, and it means, you know, it may mean building it in a way that is a little bit more expensive, or a moderate amount of more expensive. Um, you know, where it's just it is it is going to be more costly. But in 20 years, the community is going to need that network. Uh, this is not some you know passing fad. Uh, this is mm-hmm. something that's going to go on for a very long time. Um, and if anything, I think it's going to become more important. Mm-hmm. Now. What are some of your thoughts about um, the, the the various ownership uh, models, particularly in places where um, direct muni ownership is is forbidden? So, for example, North Carolina. You know, what would be uh, the benefit or the option, say, if a um, community wanted to create a non-profit, if they wanted to create a co-op, but create it with the assurance that the, that the local government and possibly the government would be their their anchor tenants, their primary uh, their primary customers. Is that a good bet? Is that a safe bet? Does that you know mitigate some of the uh, political you know potential political fallout? What are you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's 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 a good question. Um, it's it's a hard one to answer because of how state laws vary. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's um, 
fundamentally what I would be advising, you know, you mentioned North Carolina, where, uh, to be clear, um, they've passed this heinous law in 2011, um, and it effectively makes uh, network ownership um, providing services to the private sector by local governments. It makes that illegal um, effectively, but it's it's you know, technically, um, just from a lawyeristic point of view, um, it's uh, um, it's just creates barriers, is what we often say. Um, mm-hmm. To be clear, because we have we have 19 states that have barriers of varying severity, and so um, you know only a few of those, uh, maybe a quarter of those, rise to the level of what we would call an outright ban effectively. Um, but even in those situations, the local government can still build networks um, to connect itself. Um, and so we have in Chapel Hill and in Fayetteville, uh, you have the local government has had historically built networks um, in, to connect itself and even overbuilt those with the expectation of later using them to create extra jobs and that sort of thing. And okay. so, um, you know, the first step is, is I would encourage communities to continue doing that because I cannot imagine a world where um, even with all the lobbying power of AT&T and Comcast, I can't think that it's going to be illegal forever for a community to to build essential infrastructure like broadband. Um, And so I think, you know, the first thing is to recognize that we are living in a a time that hopefully will change. Um, And it will change only if, you know, people like you and me and others are able to stand up and make a compelling case for it. Um, But to to get back to your specific question, um, we have not seen a lot of examples of this, um, to my knowledge. Uh, I would certainly be interested if people have any that they want us to take a look at. I can certainly, um, you know, uh, give a follow-up. Um, but as long as a network um, is uh, controlled by the community and cannot just be sold um, to, you know, like a Comcast or someone else, um, then that's a it's a good start for an arrangement. Um, you know, making sure that the that the community has input over it. Um, you know, a co-op starting up brand new is very difficult. A number of states uh, limit the ability of the public sector to be a member of a co-op in the way that I think you described it. Um, but they certainly could be a customer of the co-op. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's something that, that we're seeing some groups start playing with. Um, and, and working very hard toward playing with is the absolute wrong term. But, I mean, you know, they've been experimenting and doing the hard pioneering work on it. Um, but we haven't learned a whole lot of lessons from that yet, in uh, to my knowledge. Um, so it's, it's something that I think we need to see communities taking a, a broader role is to say, okay, we need to figure something out. And um, in our community, we have this history of working um, together, you know, with these specific entities. And so this is going to be the right fit for us. And we trust that this is going to make sure our community has the connections it needs. Uh, I don't think there's a substitute for that. Um, you know, we're, we're never about a one-size-fits-all solution at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Um, so, um, we just try to draw lessons from uh, what we've seen in practice. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I probably should have asked this question earlier on. Give us a, a, a one-minute overview of what uh, the Institute for Self-Reliance, local self-reliance, does. Some people sure. may not um, be familiar with your work. 
Yeah, we're a, a nonprofit organization that's almost 40 years old, um, and we focus on broadly um, sort of self-determination for communities. Uh, we want to see communities able to make their own decisions, and our, our tagline is sort of uh, that we want decisions to be made by those who are impacted by them. And so broadly, uh, we're very opposed to the federal government um, telling communities they can't do some things, and we're generally opposed to the uh, state governments telling communities they can't do things like building networks. Um, the exceptions to that are we are strong believers in the Bill of Rights um, and the uh, um, and our you know the the right of minorities not to be persecuted and things like that. Um, but uh, we work strongly on uh, economic issues, um, strong Main Street organizations, um, or strong Main Street businesses, um, community banks rather than the very large international banks. Uh, we work on energy decentralization to try and uh, make sure uh, power is uh, produced locally by those who are using it. Um, and uh, we also work on a number of other issues that generally um, are centered around the idea of promoting the public good recognizing that there are a number of issues that are best solved by collective action as opposed to individual action. So it is it, it's kind of interesting. I think when I first heard about the organization and um and then there were there were, you know, all these um I think I first heard about the organization like in the heat of some of these state legislative battles back in oh five and oh six, uh, before they really gained gained some momentum. And it was ironic to me because the folks that were fighting the community-owned networks, to me, were the same people who philosophically were the ones who were for that, you know, self-reliance and, you know, doing things on your own and not having, you know, the government intercede and so forth and so on. It's like they basically flipped, you know, what they held dear and then would talk about, you know, what's, what made America great yet they would turn around and, in essence, try to kill in this latter day, you know, communities that are trying to be more more self-reliant. And I, I find that rather, um, I don't know, distressing some days. Yeah, you're not alone. Um, we, <laughs> we we certainly see that, uh, that same scenario. You know, it, it's very interesting because um, at the local level, this is almost never a partisan issue. Um, you know, the the majority of communities that have built their own networks uh, vote conservative. They vote Republican, uh, often in in very uh, lopsided ways. Um, and yet, when we see um, a dispute rising above what, uh, whether it's at the state legislature, um, whether it's in Congress, or even in some extents uh, when there's a big fight locally you'll see the talking points will be very much geared toward trying to get Republicans to oppose this. Um, and so you're right. I mean, it is it is often the same people who are saying that they want uh, more local decision-making authority. Um, and I think the only way to dis explain that is to just note that um, a lot of these legislators are only hearing from lobbyists. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to call any individual legislator corrupt, but uh, if you read uh, Larry Lessig's book *Republic Lost*, where he talks about the corrupting influence of money, I think that's the the key issue to understanding these statewide uh, fights, which is that there's only one industry, uh, or there's only one side in this industry that can afford to have many lobbyists working all the time in all of the state capitals. 
the cable and telephone companies are constantly talking to legislators. They're telling them all kinds of things which have varying degrees of of truthiness. Um, and they um, and the, these legislators, even if they mean well, um, you know, they're they're busy people and they hardly ever hear from the public interest side. And so um, I, I think that sometimes if if we could get a national spotlight on this issue, it would almost be comical at just how bad the talking points are for those who want to take away the authority uh, to decide locally whether or not a network is a good investment. You know, it's it's something that comes down to what Harold Feld often says, which is, um, I don't want to I don't want to run the cable and telephone companies out of a job. I want to make them work for a living. Um, and I and I think that it's been far too easy for them to buy the legislation that they want. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think a large part of it has to do with the mechanics of how our works. I mean, we had a couple of uh, state legislators on the show um, last week. And one one Republican, one Democrat, and you know, we talked about the the, the process of you know, how state legislatures work. First off, you have people who are doing this as a part time job, so by default, their ability to, to even have the time to grasp complex issues is difficult. But when you throw in complex issues with technology wrapped in there, it's even worse. So so you're already at a dis- we as in you know communities are at a disadvantage because the legislator's time is, is is limited. And then you have, um, in essence, uh, they're only meeting part of the year. And I'm not sure how every state works, but I know in some cases, probably California might be an exception because of its size, but like, for example, in Iowa, they meet six months of the year. Uh, and I know those seats are similar. So they're not even in, in business all year long. And so we sort of have this, weighted disadvantage and you know and always I have to ask the question well how do we fight that how do we get around that issue well I think the the first thing to do is that we need to get engaged you know we need to get um, we need to get more people talking with their elected officials uh, you know it's not a matter of needing to get a million people to turn out um, you know if we had three to five people that suddenly started writing to their elected officials um, in each district um, talking about the importance of um, of community deciding for itself um, whether or not to build a network um, and and how to build that network, whether it should connect schools and libraries alone or whether it should uh, be able to go further than that. Um, that would be a tremendous start, and that's exactly why we've been trying to produce more of these sort of fact sheets and and basic resources as opposed to 50-page reports. Um, you know, we we produce the long reports, and then we try to mm-hmm. take the best lessons out of that and turn it into fact sheets, so that it'll get the attention of radio hosts like yourself, and uh, um, and then and also be something that that constituents can send to elected officials, that um, that local you know the local city officials can send to state officials to say, um, you can't take away our authority to make these decisions. Uh, we need to be able to decide the best course of action. Um, and so, you know, that's that's our game plan, which is trying to get more people involved um, and trying to give them the tools to be involved. 
Um, fundamentally, I don't think there's a solution to that. We're not going to suddenly be able to match lobbying dollars. Um, you know, the only thing we can do is get people inspired and uh, and talk about the importance of uh, local decision making and and having some actual choices in the market for for residents and businesses. So it's a um, it's a, an involved process. One of the uh, audience members here. You know, mentioned that. Don't forget that a lot of times it's not the state legislator that needs to be the initial point of contact. It's the staffers because the staffers do a lot of the work. And so, and in fact, I've had a, a lobbyist in Washington explain you know very similar kind of thing uh, at the at the national level. You know, it's that the the the, the staffers are the ones that do the legwork. And I guess if you had this. I say, you know, what's your starting point? Uh, maybe it, maybe, maybe it's that way, you know, because I know we all are focused on, uh, especially in the you know, battle when we were from Carolina, uh, right, to, to run government uh, or to, to run networks that, you know, there we were focused on actual legislators. But, um, you know, the run-up to those kinds of, of moments, that maybe we need to have, you know, state this as a a staffer <laughs> as a staffer effort because that's people who get the job done. Right. We we certainly do. I think you know the first the first step has to be that we make it an important issue. And um, you know, if if you have ten people writing to a state representative on something, I think that's going to get the attention of a staffer. Um, and you know, making sure that the staffer knows where they can go to get resources, um, and that's you know something that um, you know you've you've certainly put out a number of reports. We've put out a number of reports. Um, at this point, I feel like uh, we need we will continue to produce more reports, but there's more than ample evidence out there. Now we need to do a better job of making people aware of it. And um, now, how how. When you have states like uh, Minnesota that are fairly rural, um, how, how do you how do you I don't know keep those folks who are further away or I would you know say geographically furthest away from the state house? How do you keep them engaged? You know because there can't always be sort of the the throwdown you know big battle like you know we had in North Carolina where there was a clear moment and there was a clear endpoint and and, every, and you kind of like keep people motivated on that. Based on that, but but what do you do when you have people just geographically? You know, it is hard to get to to the state house. I mean, I live in Oakland, and so, you know, it's hard to roll three uh, two three hours up to Sacramento. You know, to, to our state legislature. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's. I think there it comes down to once again just um, being able to make contact, even if you're not doing in person meetings. Uh, it's important to. Um, to make contact and to, to send letters or emails or phone calls. Um, so one of the things that, that we do is we, we try to make sure that people in rural areas uh, in Minnesota um, are getting their stories told uh, because if they're not the ones that are talking to their legislators and um, and uh, making a case for what they see, then we just keep hearing from the private sector that oh no we we've solved that problem you know rural Minnesota is is served 
um, you know, as an example, um, Sibley County has been doing some some interesting planning and, and has done a tremendous amount of outreach to get people um, advised to aware, make them aware of and participate in building this network that's going to connect everyone. And at a meeting, Frontier stood up and said, basically, we connect everyone with broadband in this exchange. And a woman was able to stand up and say, I live in that exchange. You will not give me broadband. I've asked you multiple times for DSL. And, you know, the, the frontier person without batting an eye basically said, oh, we connect most people in that exchange. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's the sort of thing that, that, that we see regularly where um, the lobbyists and the public relations people will make bold claims that are inaccurate uh, and it's it's the job of people like me to try and make sure that someone in Sibley is aware of that and can counter it. And so, you know, fundamentally, it's about organizing information and getting it out to people and allowing them to uh, respond. And so, if you know, if um, uh, if we hear some bold claims by AT and T in Georgia that it's going to um, uh, going to uh, you know solve the rural broadband problem if only the state revokes the authority of communities to build their own networks, and then we can have mayors and and local leaders sending their legislators the comments from AT and T's CEO at the same time telling Wall Street that we're not investing in rural America, um, then that's huge. But it, we have to have those connections. And so the, the thing that needs to happen is we need to be able to very quickly share information, get it to the rural people to make sure that their legislators are aware that it's an issue and are aware that they're being lied to by uh, the the industry in many cases. Oh. Yeah, I wanted to pick up on here in, in, the, in the chat room. Uh, can we harness... Uh, Colleges, state colleges, or any kind of college campuses, to 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 find foot soldiers in the, you know, people because geography or whatever may not be able to make it. But if you, you know, our student population, which clearly understands the issues, understands the technology at hand here, and then you look at like all the various social media that they just. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. You're you're breaking up a little bit on my end, oh, at least sorry. here. No, no, no. Um, I, I said, can you can you rec- you know would that be a good mechanism for recruiting some foot soldiers, you know, to help influence legislature? Absolutely. You know, I think you know the, we're in a stage where we're not going to turn down the assistance of anyone, right? But mm-hmm. it's it's very clear that legislators are intimidated by this technology, and we need people who are not intimidated by it to step up. Um, And so, you know, to the extent that that students um, can say to legislators, uh, this is incredibly important for my future. I'm not going to move back to my town that I came from if they do not have real broadband. I'm not, um, you know, I can't be an entrepreneur in these places because the uh, DSL is not adequate. Uh, you know, I think that's this is one of the issues that we're regularly seeing is that legislators think if you have broadband, you have broadband, not understanding that a slow and unreliable DSL connection does not allow you to create Google in your garage. 
Um, right. So, you know, I think it's, it is really important that, that people talk with legislators to make them understand what problems they're having. So if a student is saying, I can barely afford my cell phone bill because every time I try to do anything that I want to do, I'm, I'm busting through a cap or, you know, that requires me to spend more money um, or something else. It's it's really important that those experiences be um, sent to elected officials because the elected officials are probably on different kinds of data plans. They're not having the same constraints, and uh, and they need to hear about it. Uh, too mm-hmm. often, I think we assume that our elected officials know what's going on in our lives, and they don't. So right. um, students have the energy. Um, and the motivation, um, it would be terrific to have them more involved. Excellent. Well, we're pretty much at the end of the show. We will be, uh, I'll be keeping an eye out for the uh, report on Santa Monica and uh, look forward to that. And, uh, you know, I appreciate all the work that that you and, and the Institute are doing and, and clearly they're all pulling in the same direction. So, you know, allies and the cause forever and ever and all that kind of good stuff and, and, and thank you and thank you for being on the show, uh, you know, with the insights and, and the ideas and then also for sort of wrapping what others are doing. Uh, thank you also to our audience uh, for being here. Uh, tomorrow, I've just got confirmation, we're going to have uh, some folks from Seattle to talk about the newly announced Seattle project. Uh, the promo won't be up online for for a couple hours while we get all our all our act together, but we have confirmed the views, so we will be talking about Seattle's gig uh, tomorrow. Uh, everybody, thank you very much for being uh, in the audience. Uh, come back again tomorrow, and uh, have a great day. Keep broadband moving. Thanks, thank you, Craig. All right, bye. Bye. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 